having a mentor is very important in just about every aspect of life. Some of you are, are teachers or retired teachers, and so you know that when you're in college and towards the end of your college time, you have uh, student teaching experience. You watch another teacher lead a classroom, and you get experience that way. When you start in almost any career, having someone with experience to guide you is priceless. But what about your normal, everyday life? In 1999, the television program 60 Minutes aired a segment about a problem that was plaguing the white rhinoceros in South Africa. In one park, 10% of the rhinos had been killed. Now you would think it was a problem with poachers going after their tusks, but when they found the rhinos dead, the tusks were still intact. After an investigation, park rangers discovered that humans were not behind this killing at all, so who was? They found out the answer was elephants. You say, elephants? What, what in the world is that? Well, an ecologist in South Africa said that elephants were just like many aimless teenagers who get into mischief. They didn't grow up with any role models to model how their behavior should be. And so when the younger elephants broke away from their pack, they started acting like teenagers, human teenagers do. They started getting into trouble. And he said this, quote, I think everyone needs a role model, and these elephants that left the herd had no role model and no idea of what appropriate elephant behavior was. Whatever appropriate elephant behavior is, I don't know, but I know it's not going after rhinos. Listen to the words of the report from 60 Minutes. As they studied the elephants, a pattern began to emerge. The elephants picking on the rhinos were suffering from an excess of testosterone. The solution turned out to be the biggest Big Brother program in the world. The rangers began looking for role models to keep the youngsters from mating at an early age when they couldn't handle the, those raging hormones. They decided to bring in some even larger bull elephants. In 1998, the rangers at Kruger National Park brought in some of these big elephants in specifically designed trucks. because. No one had ever tried to move elephants like this before. The bigger, older elephants established a new hierarchy, in part by sparring with the younger elephants to discourage them from being um, promiscuous. Elephant promiscuity, I guess. That means less testosterone, and that's good news for the rhinos. Gus Van Dyke, the park ecologist, compared it to a group of teenagers who have been acting up and who are confronted by their fathers all of a sudden. The juvenile delinquents seemed to be reading the message loud and clear. Since the big bulls arrived, not one rhino had been killed. The elephants lacked a bigger, older, stronger, more experienced elephant to show them the way. So they did what any teenager would do in that situation. They got into trouble. They hurt other animals. They didn't have the wisdom or sense to make good decisions. And all it took was introducing some leaders into the picture and it brought everything back into balance. But you say, well, we're not animals. Certainly we're not elephants. We're humans. But you've seen this behavior played out too, haven't you, with people? See, we all need someone who is willing to walk with us through the journey of life. A few weeks ago, I even said that the primary purpose of the church is to glorify God through making disciples. Isn't mentoring just a worldly adaptation of discipleship? This is the pattern that we see laid out in Scripture. Well, this morning, we're going to see how the Apostle Paul 
gave his wisdom, his guidance, and his experience to the church in Corinth, and how that sometimes means making difficult decisions and having difficult conversations. And sometimes it means making people mad. But Paul did this because that's what a good parent, or in his case, a good discipler or spiritual parent does for his children. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians 4 if you're not there already. But before we dive into the text, I want to give a, a very brief recap since it's been a few months since we've been through the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and this church is, is full of young believers, not so much in age, but in just their lifespan of, of the faith. Like They haven't been Christians for very long. They don't have hundreds of years. No one did at this point, but they don't have hundreds of years or thousands of years like we do for people to work through doctrine and work through things of the, the faith. And so they're young, they're immature, and they were having trouble. In chapter 1, after giving thanks to God for them, Paul addressed the issue that the people were divided over who they were following. Some followed Paul, some followed Peter, some followed Apollos, and they were all dividing into their different camps who they were going to follow. This is my favorite teacher. This is my favorite teacher. The church was divided. And Paul was pleading with them to be united around the one person that matters, and it's Christ. Paul continued his letter by proclaiming that Christ was the main thing. He even said this, quote, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul's focus is the gospel. And we see this over and over and over again. And in chapter 3, he again deals with the division that had come to define the Corinthian church. In chapter 4, he continues to work through the thing that seemed to divide the church the most. Who would these people follow? This morning, I have four main points that run through this passage. Kind of building on that first four chapters and coming into this passage, four points. First, Paul loved the church. He loved the church. Second, Paul modeled the Christian life for the church. He was the example for the people in the Corinthian church. Third, he taught the church. He taught them the doctrines of the faith. He taught them God's word. He taught them about Christ. And then finally, Paul emphasized the true power of the gospel. Now, all of these things are what a faithful shepherd does, right? I mean, whether it's with literal sheep in a valley or whether it's inside of a local church or whether it's inside your home, a faithful leader does these things. A faithful leader loves the sheep, serves as an example for the sheep, teaches the sheep, and proclaims the gospel above everything else. So the first thing we see is that Paul loved the church. In verse 14, he called them his beloved children. Paul has been correcting these believers throughout this entire letter. And he doesn't want them to feel like he is merely just trying to shame them. Because we know that it's easy to shame someone when they're in error. Make them feel bad about what they've done. Just shame them. And he does shame the people, certainly. There, and by the way, there is a purpose for shame in our lives. There's a reason why it used to be that when you would go to certain places, you'd have to park behind the building because you were ashamed of what other people would see. You wouldn't want anybody in the community seeing you go into that place. 
When shame is taken away, sin comes in and it swoops in and takes over. And we've seen that in our lives and we're seeing that here in the Corinthian church. So Paul shames them, certainly. But the purpose is not just to embarrass them. The purpose is to shame them in order to bring them back into right thinking. But he does this to help them to see, and this is the right thinking, that their pride and disunity is breaking apart the fellowship. We just did a four-week series on the church. We stopped our normal teaching through books of the Bible, and, and I do this every few years where I'll take some time and preach on the church to show that the church matters, to show that it's essential for God and his mission. And I've preached standalone sermons before, but it's rare, but I preach about the church because this is the, where the gospel is preached, taught, lived, and sent out on mission. And what Paul sees happening in this church is that they've lost their focus on the mission that God has given to them. They were converted to the faith, then they were discipled in the faith, but somehow in that journey, they put more stock in their leaders than they did in what the leaders were proclaiming. They've lost their focus. Paul even says this in verse 15, that he's become their spiritual father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He's trained them in their faith. Now, here's the question. Don't you think Paul took some pride in their journey? And I'm not saying like arrogant pride, the type of pride that we think we're better than someone else, but no, the pride that a parent has when their child does something well. And I've seen that pride from some of you in the videos that I've seen on social media. Your kid does something great, and you show that video of that kid powerlifting, right? Winning a state championship, scoring a goal, doing a, a perfect, flawless dance routine, right? We, we've, we've seen this. We're, we're proud of our children. And Paul has the same spiritual pride. That he played a role in this. That God allowed him to be part of these people's lives. And then now he sees them and they're throwing it away. Because they align themselves with this teacher or this teacher or this teacher. Satisfaction of a job well done, he feels. But here's the question. What happens when things turn out poorly? Paul trained these believers and they've fallen back into their old ways. He was frustrated. He was hurt, spent many hours training people, and now they're just kind of ignoring it. And this is verse 16. This is kind of building the frustration that Paul's having. He says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. So he's trained them, and then now he's modeling the Christian life for the church. This is point number two. He modeled the Christian life for them. He, he, he even repeats this again in 1 Corinthians 11, which is the verse that you may recognize more. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. In other words, follow me as I follow after Christ faithfully. Paul, like any good leader, set the example for what a mature Christian life and belief should look like. He taught the church and provided discipline to the believers. He showed them how to live as mature Christians. And in 16, he's saying, get rid of this pride and instead focus on the gospel. Because what happens when your favorite teacher is gone? Church, I say the same thing to you this morning. Follow me as I follow Christ. 
Examine what you hear from me, what you hear from the pulpit, and examine what you see in my life. Does it match up to what the Bible says? If it does, follow me. If it doesn't, don't. See, the truth is, a lot of books have been written about leadership. You can get PhDs in leadership now where you just study how to lead people. A worthwhile journey, certainly. And, and, and secular and sacred. So it, it crosses all the boundaries there. Uh, speakers, though, especially in church cultures, have been making millions of dollars writing books and doing speaking tours. They'll sell out arenas on how to be a better leader. But you may know this, many of those have fallen. Many of these people who are, are, are seen as leaders, pillars in whatever community that they're in, have fallen. So many have failed to listen to their own advice. And in churches, this is so troublesome. Not out loud, but you can probably think through names of famous pastors. Or maybe even pastors that have come through this church that have fallen, that have failed, that have committed sins that disqualify them from ministry. Listen, there's a, a great danger in following me. It's not that I will intentionally lead you astray, but I am a flawed man. I can't be perfect. I will fail you, and if you put your trust in me as your guide or leader, you will be regularly disappointed. And I can tell you situations where a pastor disqualifies himself from ministry, and the church loses half its people. Why? Same thing that was happening in 1 Corinthians. Pastor leaves, so do the people. They were following after him. They weren't following after the gospel. They were following after their chosen favorite preacher. Please don't do that. And here's the other side. This doesn't mean don't ever follow me, because this could kind of, you can, we tend to swing the pendulum one end to the other. We're either on this extreme or on this extreme, and I'm saying, no, follow me as I follow Christ. The church has elders, of which I am one. The church has elders that God has called and equipped and that you have affirmed to shepherd this church, to give you guidance, to make those very difficult decisions that, that most of us don't want to do, even those in the elders. We don't want to make these decisions sometimes. They're hard. And God has given the church a staff of people who work here who get paid to do this job so we can devote our entire lives to the work of the ministry of the church. Now, I'm not saying don't follow us. I'm saying follow us as long as we follow Christ faithfully. Your pastors and elders will fail you. Your Bible study leaders will fail you. Your spouse will fail you. Kids, your parents will fail you. They will fail you all the time. And too many Christians have put our hope, we've put our hope and our trust in those people, in one another. And we're shaken when they fall. In other words, we're surprised when they sin. Don't follow me. Follow me as I faithfully follow Christ. This is the example that Paul gives in verse 16. So we've seen that Paul loved the church, and then he modeled the Christian life for the church. And in verse 17, we see the third thing he did. He taught the church. Look, look at this verse. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in the church. 
Again, in verse 14, he calls the Corinthians his children. And then in verse 17, he is ensuring that they have a shepherd in Timothy. Paul rightly sees himself as their spiritual father. He was planting churches and establishing churches, training pastors and raising them up to lead congregations. He was their spiritual father. Now, I don't know if you knew this about me, but I have served in churches in um, Arizona, Southern California, and Central Florida. And in those three places, there's um, a heavy, heavy concentration of Roman Catholics. And so often I'll meet someone and I'll, I'll talk to them and, and just about life. And they, they ask me the, the, the question that we all ask everyone, what do you do for a living? Depending on the situation, I have a couple different answers that I can give. But often I'll just say pastor. And for people who have grown up in the Roman Catholic Church, the term pastor doesn't have the same connotation it does for us. They know what it means, but it's father at that point. And so even after some gentle corrections... Over, even over years, people have called me Father Ryan. I said, well, no, I'm not a Father Ryan, and please, you guys don't do that either. That's just weird. But, but they would call me Father Ryan, and I started to think about this over the years. You know what? I know Jesus said don't call any man Father. I get that. But the truth of the matter is they call their, their leader, their shepherd, Father, because it gives such a high regard for what that person is doing in their lives. Spiritual leadership. They are the spiritual fathers for their congregation. Shouldn't we look to our elders, those in our church, maybe even your Bible study leaders in the same light? They're spiritual fathers. They're pouring into you, or even spiritual mothers, but they're pouring into you the truth of God's word, showing you how to live, showing you how to be a mature Christian. This is what parents are supposed to do. If you have kids, you love your children, you model what maturity looks like, and you teach them in all things with a special focus on the truth of the gospel. If you can do all three of those, your kids have a really good chance of turning out well. And this is Paul's motivation for writing his entire letter, not to raise up children physically, but to raise up children spiritually. He was raising spiritual children, and he cared so much for the church that he would send his spiritual protege to them. We spent these last few weeks outlining the purposes of the local church. And I don't want to keep harping on these things, but Paul is modeling what churches should be doing right now. He's modeling what those in leadership, your elders in any church, not just this church, pastors, elders in every church should be doing this in their churches today. So what is he doing? He's discipling Christians and he's raising up leaders for the purpose to send them out. Christ laid the foundation for the church. We certainly know that. Paul built on that foundation, and we are the beneficiaries of that. It's all about spiritual replication. One person trains another to one day take their place. It's the basis for discipleship. The entire church also serves to do this, is that we train others, the next generation, so that we can replicate ourselves. The older members of a church, the fact of the matter is that in 40 or 50 years, most of you won't be here. The fact is, is that you leave your legacy by training those who come after you. In a hundred years, none of us will be here. So what do we do? We train generations behind us, and we train them, and we disciple them, and we encourage them. We show them how to live, how to study the Bible. We give them truth, and this is what Paul was doing, and this is what church leaders should be doing. 
young guys who want to go in ministry often don't just jump into the pulpit. Sometimes they go to very small churches, but they, they often don't just jump right in the pulpit preaching. What do they do? We stick them with the teenagers because it's a really good training ground. And they can mess up, they can, they can blow buildings up, and it's not going to have as big of an impact as it would if they blew up this building, right? They can make a mess, and it's localized. We're okay with that. But at some point, every student pastor realizes time is up. For me, it was that I was too old. I was older than some of these kids' parents, and I wasn't cool anymore. The older I got, the kids stayed the same age, and so I was getting older and less cool, and the kids were not connecting with me, and my body couldn't physically take sleeping on bunk beds in a summer camp for two weeks at a time. I just couldn't do it anymore. But at every point, we, we, we experience that change, right, that, that purposeful uh, change that God has given us in our lives where he trains us or someone trains us, and then they send us out. But here's the problem. I've seen pastors, young pastors, be treated as traitors when they express an interest to preach more. This was my story. Student pastors often outgrow their ministry and, and go into something where they have a bigger reach. And we know that here. When we brought Corey in here, I hope you understand that he's not going to be here forever. He's not here now so I can talk about him. He's not going to be here forever. And the fact of the matter is, is if in a decade he's still here, I'm going to be disappointed in him. Why? He's too good of a preacher. His ministry of sphere is going to get larger. It needs to get bigger God's going to use him in some great ways, and don't get sad, this is part of ministry, training people for the purpose of sending them out. I remember going to a former boss of mine and telling him that God had given me a burden to preach more. I, I didn't know if it was every Sunday, I didn't know what that looked like, but I said that I wanted more experience in the pulpit, and so I, I, I asked him, I said, can you give me more opportunities, can I preach for you more often, this is why Corey preaches here more often. I said, can I have maybe once every two months? Oh, yeah, yeah. The relationship after that day soured. He, he viewed me as someone who was not trustworthy, someone who had given up on him and given up on that church. When in all actuality, I just wanted to be trained so when the church decided to send me out, I could go. I could be ready. But he saw disloyalty. Church, I want you to think back, especially if you've been here for a long time, but even if you've been at other churches, think back through all of those names of, of guys who, whether they were in student ministry or whether they were just raising up in some form of ministry and teaching in Sunday school, who have been raised up to go out and to, whether plant churches, revitalize churches, to serve as missionaries, to go be on staff at other churches. You can think of names of, of men who filled this pulpit, who moved on, not to bigger and better, because there is no bigger or better in the kingdom of Christ, but they moved on. They were trained and then sent out. And here's where I want to give you encouragement. Whether you've been at this church, and many of you have, or other churches, you have absolutely no idea the scope of influence that you have had through training and sending out. If you could think through all of those men that have been through this pulpit, whether student pastors, associate pastors, senior pastor, whatever, those guys who are now serving in ministry, how many guys they've trained to serve in ministry, how many people have come to know Christ through their ministry, how many churches are being blessed today, this morning, because of the ministry that's happened here in this church. And this is what I hope we become, because this is what Paul was doing. Now, someone may say, well, this sounds like a philosophy of a revolving door ministry where there's no stability, where guys are coming in and out and constantly coming and going. And in a way, maybe. 
But I'm not talking about having unhealthy leadership. By the way, this is another benefit, a practical benefit that we see in Scripture for having a plurality of elders. So that if today Cody and I and Corey are out on the road and we crash and die, guess what? This church is not going to crumble because it's not built on us. There are other men that will come and take our place and step up and carry the load. I'm not talking about unhealthy leadership. I'm saying that a church should be training and sending. This is part of the church's DNA for 2,000 years. Would you want it any other way? Wouldn't you want healthy churches to replicate what they're doing, to send people out? Personally, my aim is that we become known as a church that is known not so much for hordes and hordes of people coming in, which would be fantastic, but my goal as a pastor, as a shepherd, and as a leader is to be known as a church that is training and equipping and sending people out for the work of ministry. In other words, I want us to see and do what Paul did here. Now look at verses 18 and 19. Paul says, some of you are arrogant, or some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. So some people in this church thought Paul was never going to return. Travel was very difficult. You couldn't hop on a train or a plane or hop in a car. If you wanted to go somewhere, you often had to spend days or weeks on a ship. And then after that, days or weeks traveling by foot or on the back of an animal. And Paul wrote to them that he would come as soon as he could because the people had become comfortable in their arrogance. They're saying, look, we can believe whatever we want because Paul's not coming back to fix it. Paul had a lot invested in the church. He cared about them. He wanted to visit them. He recognized that the plans depended on God's will. So he said, if the Lord wills, that he wants to return. And in the second half of verse 19, Paul says that when he would get there, he would find out what the people had been saying and what kind of power their words had. In other words, he was going to confront these people face to face because he knew that they had no th nothing to stand on. They had no power. They put their hope and trust in something that had no power. They put their hope and trust in their pride and their own intelligence. And again, it's not a stretch to see how this applies to our lives in the church today. Your leaders, the ones who God has called and equipped and you have affirmed, those leaders are commanded by God to confront sin head on. It often makes people not like us very much. That's not the point. Your leaders in the church will one day stand before God to give an account not only for their lives, but also for the lives of others, the lives that they've shepherded. Because of that, touchy things or situations may push someone away or easily ignored because we don't like these, these difficult things. No one likes confrontation. But God gives us multiple examples, this one with Paul included, of why difficult conversations need to be had. And the reality is for the Christian is that these discussions should be had somewhat regularly with believers. When we see a brother or sister in sin, it is wrong for us not to say, hey, brother, sister, I care for you. I don't want you to fall into this sin. This is dangerous. Because sin kills everything that it touches. It spreads. So we lovingly help the erring brother or sister see the problem like Paul did and then embrace Jesus as the giver of grace that covers those sins. See, Paul is a shepherd of shepherds. 
He models this for every church and every Christian and every leader. We're not called to go on hunts to try to find out people's secret sins. Because I believe in Scripture says that God will bring those to light. But I think we have a tendency to avoid all those discussions, don't we? It's difficult. So here's the summary of this. Why does this matter? Look at verse 20 and 21. Why does this matter? Paul says, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spiritual spirit of gentleness? To put it in 2020 speak, talk is cheap. But we've seen this said throughout scripture many times. That our, our belief, our faith cannot be expressed through words alone. That they have to be lived out. And here's where Paul's fatherly love comes through. My kids, if all that I tell them is, hey, do this, do this, and don't do this, but yet I'm doing all the exact opposite, my words are empty. They're meaningless. And this has been one major theme for Paul, has been the power of the gospel. It means confronting error. Listen, this is Paul's purpose. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. But God showed his love for us, that in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Paul's saying this is the theme of what he's trying to accomplish. It's the gospel, it's the gospel, it's the gospel. We've sinned by breaking God's law. Jesus lived a righteous life to fulfill the requirements of the law that we couldn't. Jesus died so that we wouldn't suffer the wrath of God. And we are the beneficiaries of God's grace that only comes when we ignore our desires and instead trust in Jesus with everything that we have. When we have faith in Christ, he gives us life. But so many people stop right there. Maybe you've heard this. Maybe you've even said this. My faith is between me and Jesus. I don't need other people in my life to guide me or to tell me what to do. I don't need anyone else. I worship God how I want. But that ignores scripture to be in fellowship and under the protection of the local church. For Paul, this was never a concern because he knew right doctrine and right practice. Here's how it ties together. The church in Corinth was divided. And so the question that I have to ask is, what does it say to people outside of a local church when the church inside is divided, when they're defined by their division? In Corinth, where people were taking sides, well, I follow Peter, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, but we generally don't have that today. But what if it's this? Well... I believe this. I hold to this doctrine. Or I'm anti this doctrine. Do you see how easy it is to split a church right down the center? And I'm not talking about doctrines of, of whether the virgin birth or the inerrancy of scripture or that Jesus is the only way. We divide over those all day long. I'll fight to the death for those things. But are we really going to split a church over our different end times view? No, 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 man. I think you interpreted that wrong. I think you interpreted that wrong. You're not, we're not part of a family anymore. No, no. 
What does it say to people outside of our church when they can see our division on the inside? In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Philippians 1, he says, be stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is Paul's theme. In verse 21, he says that he's correcting the church with gentleness, like every good father, but he may need to use the rod. It's getting that serious. You know, you can gently correct your children, but sometimes you got to bring that rod out. It's going to be painful. But if the church listened to the words of correction and made the adjustments, he could be gentle with them. Again, tie this together. Why is this such an emphasis? Because the division that he saw in the church in Corinth was tarnishing the church's gospel witness. Can I tell you this happens today too? I'd say this even, maybe even more today than it did 2,000 years ago. How do I know this? With one tap of your phone or click of a mouse, the entire world knows how dissatisfied you are with someone or something. Instantaneously, the entire world can see how upset you are over something. Every thought, opinion, or emotion can be made public in a second, and all of our friends see that. And those in the church in Corinth were watching people in, uh, uh, the people outside of the church were watching those inside the church. And the church looked bad. They were not good witnesses for the gospel. It's not what God wants us to be. God doesn't want us to be defined by our division. The church is the bride of Christ, and the local church is how God has chosen to spread his message throughout the entire world. Are we perfect? Of course not. Do we have disagreements? 100%. Yes. But that can never define who we are. We must be different. If you have the King James, you know that the, the verse says that we are a peculiar people. The ESV says we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. If we've been brought out of darkness into light, we have no business looking back to the darkness, lest we become pillars of salt. We have no business behaving like the world. And please don't think I'm speaking to any person or any situation. I'm not. I'm speaking to myself. I crave division. It's in my flesh. I crave people to do what I want them to do. I want them to be like, I follow Ryan. I don't follow anyone else. I follow Ryan. That's what I crave. Again, don't follow me. Follow me as I follow faithfully Christ. And this passage shows us that Paul was doing what any faithful shepherd would do for his church. He loved the people, modeled maturity, taught the church well. Why? Because the church is called to be witnesses and proclaimers of the gospel to the world. Our calling is to proclaim the gospel to the entire world so that everyone may hear of the grace that only Jesus can provide. And Paul recognized that the Corinthians had lost sight of their first love. And they needed correction. He did this because the gospel matters this much. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so 